0: Zechariah chapter 9. So as a reminder, we've heard this now two times, that C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that is our experience, that is our story. As we move from one experience to another, one joy, one pleasure to another, we continually fall into this pattern of expectation and disappointment. And we find ourselves longing for something that we don't yet have. Even the Christian who has found in Jesus a fulfillment, but there's still something that we know is not quite yet complete for we know him but not face to face. And so we're we're longing, we're yearning for our final fulfillment, our final completion, the longing for home. And so this is now our third message in Zechariah, our third look at our longing for home. And we saw in the first message, right, chapters 1 through 6. Zechariah gives eight night visions to the people and the story is is that israel this is about five hundred years before jesus israel has returned to jerusalem from a very very long exile And they come home with excitement and celebration and anticipation that this is now when God is going to fulfill all of his promises. Because the prophets did indeed say that we'll come back home, we'll be prosperous, we'll have a Davidic king ruling not only over us, but over all of the nations around us. The temple will be rebuilt, Yahweh will dwell in the midst of it, and his presence will be manifest from us as the center to the ends of the earth, and nations will come thronging to us to worship God. That was the expectation as they're returning to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they're met with disappointment. The nations aren't flocking to them, they're coming against them. There is no Davidic king ruling over the world. They're still subservient to the Persian emperor. They're not prosperous. Some of their funds are going as tribute to the Persians. And the rest, well, they're struggling with famine. And they're struggling to make ends meet. There is no manifest presence of Yahweh's return yet. Everything seems not even close to even the way they were before the exile. So this expectation as they come home and then this massive disappointment as they begin to build the temple and see none of this is happening as we had thought. So let's give up on the work and let's just accept our fate. This is how things will be. Well, it is in that setting that Haggai and Zechariah step into the setting and say, No, you guys don't understand. The promises just aren't here yet. Look forward. And that's Zachariah's main message. As both of them say, rebuild the temple. Zachariah says, rebuild the temple. Because I want to show you what it will be in the latter days. What it's going to become. Where this is all going. Don't give up hope. There is a future in store. And so he begins. And he begins his book with the eight night dreams. And he shows them. Glimpses of home. And we learned from that first message that Zachariah is inviting us to dream of home, our true home. That whether it's through worship or through prayer or through Bible study or through a sermon or if it's in art or music or literature, God has provided portals in a sense, little access points where we can enter into that vision, that longing for home. We can get a glimpse of it, much like these dreams that Zechariah shares with the people. And then in the second message, chapter seven and eight, a delegation comes to Zechariah, and they say, shall we continue to fast as we've done for some years now? Or shall the fast be over? And what they were asking was, do we continue to fast and mourn over our exile? Or is this the time when God is ending all of this? And Zechariah gives them four messages. So from eight dreams to four messages. And he tells them, you weren't really fasting for God in the first place. Actually, you weren't even really fasting from food. You were fasting from loving your neighbor. And so this is what I tell you, Zachariah says, is that there will be a time when there won't be fasting anymore. All the fasts of the exile that you guys keep in the morning, the, oh, we feel so sorry for ourselves. All of those fasts are actually going to be turned into feasts. And so your fasting from your neighbors is going to turn into a feast with your neighbors. And so Zachariah was encouraging us to love your neighbor, not just to mourn the fact that we have lost our neighbors and we've gone homeless into exile, but to start to be a neighbor And in the act of being a neighbor, we will begin to see, as Zechariah said, the nations being drawn to Israel and the fast now becomes a feast. Because feasts aren't just a lot of food. Feasts are about the people you share the food with. So build neighborhoods, Zechariah says, be a neighbor and build neighborhoods around Jesus that are the beginning point of our home. Home is coming, so let's begin by building and being neighbors to one another. And now we are in our third, and we're in chapters 9 through 12. And so these last chapters, these last six, are two prophecies. Um, In the ESV, they're called oracles and in the new king james they're called burdens and i actually reversed that it's a burden in the ESV and an oracle in the new king james they're essentially prophecies it's a word from the lord that comes to the prophet and he shares so the book structure eight dreams four messages two prophecies and we close on out all right um what we're going to see, so the first the eight dreams told us it's okay to dream about home. It's okay to yearn for that and to look for that because it affects the way we live today. The four messages said, be a neighbor. And now these two prophecies are going to say, Rest in the homemaker. That's not a pressure meant for you. You're not the homemaker. Our longing for home does not hinge upon our efforts and our strength and our intellect and our amazing creativity to create the home here. It's up to the homemaker who's going to come and make the home for us. So it is not pressured and burdened upon us. Well, the reason we're waiting so long is because we haven't gotten our act together. That's not the message we see in Zechariah. He's going to say that the homemaker is going to come and make home. And we simply need to rest and wait. And yes, dream of home and be a neighbor in the meantime. (laughs) All right. So in chapter 4, verse 6, we... Um, heard this passage, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord, right? He said that to Zerubbabel as they're building the temple, the governor, Zerubbabel building the temple, not by your power, not by your might, but by my spirit. And that's what the homemaker says to us, Jesus, God, our, our homemaker says to you and I, your longing for home is not fulfilled. It's not satisfied by your might, by your power, but by his spirit. He's going to do it. He's going to make it. So that's what we're going to see in these two prophecies. Let's launch in chapter nine. So there are two prophecies, right? It's chapter nine, 10 and 11 are the first prophecy. 12, 13 and 14 is the second prophecy. The first prophecy deals with promises lost. And then the second prophecy is going to deal with promises regained, restored. So, there's going to be this hope cast in the first prophecy. And it's going to look really brilliant. And it's going to be, that's home. That's what we're longing for. And then at the very end, it's going to be like, where did it go? And then the second prophecy is going to say, here it comes. This is the grand finale. This is the climax. This is the finish. And this is how it's all going to come down. So, right before we launch into these two prophecies, I do need to warn you (laughs) this deals with eschatology. A really fancy word, which simply means the study of the end times. Now, instantly, as I mentioned that, there are two, generally, two extreme reactions to things like eschatology and end times. There's the one group that is, gets extremely excited and can hardly contain themselves. And then there's the other group that goes, oh my gosh, not one of these messages End time stuff confuses me. I don't understand it. It's kind of scary. And quite frankly, I don't even, I'm not even sure what to think about it all. Hey, that's a fair place. Okay. And I can totally understand and relate to your feeling there. So, so relax. I'm not going to bombard you with a lot of weird terms about the future. And we're going to simply go through what Zachariah is showing. And we're, we're going to just look at it and say, this is, these are pictures of home. This is the encouragement that he's trying to paint. And sometimes to help us kind of clarify the confusion about these end times prophecies is to think about a starry sky. All right, so you go outside, it's nighttime, and upon the black sky, you've got a bunch of stars. Now, we can all make out a constellation or two. We can point to the different stars Um, We can explain that they're there. We can say there's a cluster there. There's a Milky Way there. They're really spread out there. The Big Dipper there. You know, we can point to those things, and that's pretty clear. We can all see that. But what we cannot see with the naked eye is how far each of those stars are in relation to us. All right? Some of those stars are much closer than others of those stars. And some of them are why that's that's the prophet seeing the two stars but not knowing necessarily the distance between them that one happens far before the other one we're on the same page somewhat well okay (laughs) so let's do this the first prophecy chapter nine the burden of the word of the lord is against the land of hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. And he goes down all way to verse 8. Talks about these cities that are going to be doomed to destruction. Then in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle boat shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, that's familiar, isn't it? That, that's the passage cited by Matthew and Luke as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we call that the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And that comes here from Zechariah that jesus was claiming as he's riding on that donkey that foretold king is me i'm coming but we never do see him ruling to the ends of the earth and over all these nations coming to him that is something yet future and so there we see right there mushed together two very distant events and then in verse 13 Uh, For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem will rise up against the people of Greece. And they're going to be fighting. Now you're like, I don't get it. It said that the king's going to come on the donkey. He's going to break the battle bow. There's going to be peace. And then and a few verses later, there's going to be war again. What is going on? Well, that again, the starry sky, right? So what we have in the first part of chapter 9, this list of cities that are going to be destroyed, uh, scholars believe that this is a reference to Alexander the Great who around 333 BC comes on the scene and begins to take down the Persian empire. And God uses him in some ways to punish the enemies of Israel. So Alexander, the great comes. And some have even commented that the listing of these cities is the very route that Alexander would have taken. So he's going to come and he's going to, with the sword and with power and military might, he's going to wipe these nations out. And then the scene changes radically in verse nine. You have this other King, who's very different than alexander the great he's not riding on a white triumphant horse he's riding on a lowly donkey he's bringing peace he's humble so one king is bringing war and he's fighting against his nations the other king is coming humbly and of course when we connect this to the gospels we realize that he even came not to make war but to be killed by the war of others And then in verse 13, what you have and sort of that whole section down to the end, it's talking about God delivering them this battle with Greece that is believed to be 150 years before Jesus. There was a time called the Maccabees. The Maccabean period. Uh, it's not in the Bible. It's in the uh, the apocryphal books, the extra books that some Christians choose to read. Um, it's a great history account. The Maccabee books tell you what happened between Israel and Greece. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided between his generals. And some of the generals settled around Jerusalem. And the generals fought over each other. And Jerusalem was in the middle. So they were in a tug of war of a vicious battle between two rivalries. Never a good place to be. And eventually one of these generals, the Seleucids, they were up in Syria, they take over Jerusalem and one of their kings, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he rises up and he is brutal. He does not like the Jews whatsoever because they will not conform to the Greek ways, the Hellenistic ways. The Jews are very culturally distant from the rest of the world. They're trying to preserve their own culture and their own identity. And so Antiochus Epiphanes IV doesn't like that and he persecutes them and, and murders many of them and outlaws judaism and and goes in the temple and and you know defames it and so what happened in that time is that judah maccabee the hammer he's called he rises up and he leads a revolt of guerrilla warfare against the antiochus epiphanes the fourth they eventually win and that's the picture that you're seeing is the the sons of zion and the sons of greece battling it out with one another and god eventually gives them victory that's what that's talking about there too so interesting sandwich we have here right we have The Maccabee period, which is about war. And we have Alexander the Great, which is about war. And then we have this king riding on a donkey, which is about leading the nations with peace. Chapter 10. So, by the way, that that king riding on the donkey, bringing the nations with peace. That is an awesome picture of our longing for home, right? Even people that don't think about God or the things of eternity, the whole world is yearning for peace, Chapter 10, um, we see this prediction of Israel being reunited. So all the exiled, scattered tribes around the world being brought together. Look at verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim, that, re- that refers to the ten northern nations that you guys have learned uh, probably two years ago or something ago. <laughs> Uh, They shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. And I will whistle, verse 8, for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. And though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. And I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and I'll gather them from Assyria. So basically naming the nations they're going to be gathered from and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and Lebanon till there is no room for them. There's going to be this massive reunion of all the tribes of Israel. So Ephraim and the 10 lost tribes, and of course, thus said the Lord, my God become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them so this is in chapter 11 what you'd call an enacted parable jesus told parables with his words Zechariah is doing a parable through his actions so god is calling him go and try out being a shepherd for a few days to show the people of israel something and what this is is the shepherds represent the leaders and the flock the sheep represent the people of israel so The shepherds, the leaders of the land, have been very cruel to the people. They've been basically, what do you call it, fleecing the flock, using them to enrich themselves. Zechariah joins the shepherds and is a different kind of shepherd. And it says that, but there's something going on, and the other shepherds begin to detest Zechariah, who is being a good shepherd. And so we have this interesting picture here of amongst a lot of sheep and these bad shepherds taking advantage of them, a good shepherd comes along and he's rejected by the other shepherds. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd in John 10. And he was rejected by the leaders of Israel, the other shepherds. But even more so when they detest Zechariah, he says to them, okay, I'm done. I ask for my wages now, whatever you think I should be paid, pay me my wages. You don't have to pay me at all. So as he's leaving, the shepherds come together and decide, okay, this is the wages we'll give Zechariah. 30 pieces of silver. And that, as you know, is exactly what Judas sells Jesus for to the religious leaders, the bad shepherds in Israel. But interesting is that in Exodus, we discover that 30 pieces of silver is the price you pay for promises of this universal kingdom of peace. This reunion, this restoration of all the people of Israel. This good shepherd that wants to take care of the people. But none of it happened to this day. None of it's happened. Why? Because the rejection of the good shepherd has nullified, at least temporarily, the other promises. So this prophecy is showing us the promises are lost as the good shepherd was rejected. The end of chapter 11, verse 15, talks about because he rejected the good shepherd, you're going to have a foolish shepherd. And that... Well, when we talk about eschatology and end time stuff, a lot of people will compare this shepherd to the beast in Revelation chapter 13. So, reject Christ, receive Antichrist. Second message, second prophecy. Chapter 12, promises restored. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and found the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering for all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And that day, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Chapter 12 opens up with a lot of hope. Every nation on earth is surrounding Jerusalem and wanting to get rid of them. Now, this has been a phrase, a, a battle that we have, you know, you guys have heard the battle of Armageddon, right? That is um, what a lot of people see here is the battle of Armageddon. You can read about that in, in uh, Revelation 16, verse 16, uh, Revelation chapter 19, This this big, massive battle. And so it looks really bad for Israel. But guess what happens? God steps in. God intervenes. And these nations that came against Israel are going to be scattered. And they're going to be defeated. And they're going to be dismayed. Verse 7. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. He's bringing equality. There's no like you know hierarchy in there. In 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps bitterly over a firstborn. You hear that? On that, In this terrible time, this resistance against Israel, God shows up. And when he shows up, they recognize him. They see him whom they had pierced. And this great repentance happens as a spirit of grace is poured out upon Israel. And we read in chapter 13, it continues. On that day, there shall be a fountain open. Uh, verse 2 through 6, you see that idolatry is going to be cut off and there's going to be no more prophets. And the implication is false prophets. And it says things like in verse 6, um, Verse 4, excuse me. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. Basically, those who were prophets and false prophets are going to be so ashamed of their position in the coming of Jesus that they're going to be like, I never was a prophet. I've been a farmer the whole time. Don't know what you're talking about. And in verse 6, if someone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? And when the prophets of Baal could not get Baal to hear their prayers and bring fire upon their offering, remember how they responded? They, they cut themselves and lacerated themselves. So it was a way for false prophets to get their false gods to hear them and pay attention. So when, when someone's looking at you, you're not a false prophet, huh? Then what are all these wounds on your back? And he's going to make up another phony excuse. You know, like, I'm not a prophet. Please, please don't kill me. (laughs) It was from my friends. They did it. So now verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So here's that shepherd again. And God is commanding the sword to be awakened against him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered i will turn my hand against the little ones strike the sheep strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered both matthew and mark cite that exact verse right when the soldiers in the garden against them bind jesus and the disciples all the goodness that god the homemaker is going to come and so there's this indication where the whole time structure of the day is going to be recreated and that There won't be night, but there will be daytime all the time. And Revelation 21 says that in the new Jerusalem, there will be no night. In fact, there's no sun for the lamb is the light thereof. Verse eight on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the east Sea And half of them to the Western Sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter, so this great gushing river is going to come out of Jerusalem and go down and water the region around and it will not stop summer or winter in other words it 's just going to keep on moving. This is similar in thought to Eden. Eden had a river that went out from Eden. Uh, the center of the whole place, and then it went out to water the four regions. And in, in Eden, the implication there in Genesis 2 is that that river is watering the whole world, that it is the life source coming from God's dwelling place down to the rest of the world. And it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume that that's the same thing that we're going to see in the future, is that there's going to be a water supply coming from the city of God to water everything. Everything will be nourished and enriched. No deserts, no famines, because the water keeps on flowing. And, and no coincidence, of course, that Jesus talks about living water and receiving that water from him. John, no, um, Mike taught Ezekiel. And remember the end of Ezekiel, we saw that Ezekiel described the river that came out of the temple. Remember that? I mean, if you do just or don't, just nod and say yes. And so there's this picture of thriving, living water and water. Of course, then we don't think of it today because it's as easy as turning your faucet. But then it was such a precious resource as it is say. But they knew how precious and how fragile it was. And actually in California, we are experiencing drought. So we, you know, people only fight over that. Verse nine, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. There it is, the universal reign of Christ. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin and so forth. So the idea is that there 's this geographical change, that everything's going to be lowered into this nice valley, and Jerusalem is going to remain up high, so it is the highest point of the earth. And um, whether this is a geogra- like a physical geographical change, it could be, or is it just a metaphorical statement that striples that wage war against Jerusalem? So now all of a sudden, whoa, what war? See, flashback. I think the way that this should be read is we're looking back at that Armageddon battle. So how how is that going to be dealt with? How is God going to fight against the nations? Like what we're looking back, in other words. So verse twelve. Um, this is. This is the plague. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Wow. Um there are people that are super imaginative and they see atomic warfare in there. That's sort of what would happen to you if you're in an atomic blast. Um that could be verse 13. So that he goes on to describe there will be great panic. And then verse 16, we jump back to home. We jump back to the future. Then everyone who survives, all of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of booths. So there's an apparent conversion. That these people, the survivors, that maybe once were against Israel will now be for Israel. all the goodness that God, the homemaker, is going to come. in the of the day is going to be recreated. And that there won't be night. But there will be daytime all the time. And Revelation 21 says that in the new Jerusalem, there will be no night. In fact, there's no sun. For the lamb is the light thereof. Verse 8. On that day. Living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the East Sea and half of them to the Western Sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter. So this great gushing river is going to come out of Jerusalem and go down and water the region around. And it will not stop summer or winter. In other words, it's going to keep on moving. This is similar in thought to Eden. Eden had a river that went out from Eden. Uh, The center of the whole place and then it went out to water the four regions and in, in Eden the implication there in Genesis 2 is that that river is watering the whole world that it is the life source coming from God's dwelling place down to the rest of the world and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume that that's the same thing that we're going to see in the future is that there's going to be a water supply coming from the city of God to water everything. Everything will be nourished and enriched. No deserts, no famines, because the water keeps on flowing. And, and no coincidence, of course, that Jesus talks about living water and receiving that water from him. John, no, um, Mike taught Ezekiel. And remember the end of Ezekiel, we saw that Ezekiel described the river that came out of the temple. Remember that? If you do just or don't, just nod and say yes. And so there's this picture of thriving, living water and water. Of course, then we don't think of it today because it's as easy as turning your faucet. But then it was such a precious resource as this day. But they knew how precious and how fragile it was. And actually in California, we are experiencing drought. So we, you know, people only fight over that. Verse nine, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. There it is, the universal reign of Christ. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimen south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin and so forth. So the idea is that there's this geographical change, that everything's going to be lowered into this nice valley, and Jerusalem is going to remain up high, so it is the highest point of the earth. And um, whether this is a geog- like a physical geographical change, it could be, or is it just a metaphorical statement that's trying so now all of a sudden, whoa, what? War? See, flashback. I think the way that this should be read is we're looking back at that Armageddon battle. So how, how is that going to be dealt with? How is God going to fight against the nations? Like what We're looking back, in other words. So verse 12, um, this, is, this is the plague. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Wow. Um, There are people that are super imaginative and they see atomic warfare in there. That's sort of what would happen to you if you're in an atomic blast. Um, That could be. Verse 13. So he goes on to describe, there will be great panic. And then verse 16, we jump back to home. We jump back to the future. Then everyone who survives all of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of booths. So there's an apparent conversion that these people, the survivors, that maybe once were against Israel will now be for Israel and for God. And of course, those that already were for God. They're all coming to Jerusalem to keep the feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, I believe, in the Nuclear. And so they would center their lives around him for a week. And then verse seventeen if any of the families of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Uh, verse twenty. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall be no more traitor or Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. A Canaanite stood for all the uncleanness. They were the rivals of Israel, right? They it's unclean stuff. So no more unclean stuff in the house of the Lord. Um also the pots, all pots will be equal, is what the thing. Like the ones in the Jerusalem, the ones over here, they're not gonna be any different. It's all gonna be holy. It's all gonna be usable for God. And then the horses it says, that the bells shall say, the bells on the horses, holy to the Lord. Horses were an unclean animal. So that these are now becoming holiness to the Lord. Wow. Even horses are now clean. What this is basically describing in these few words is all of it is going to be holy. All of it's going to be clean. No more sacred, secular divide or segregation or dichotomy. It's all going to come together and all of creation will be purged and purified and cleansed. And it's all going to be rejoicing and be holy and usable unto God. So that is the promises restored. And that's Somewhat, Um, Zechariah's, a couple of pictures and visions of our longing for home. Um, But we still aren't home, right? We've talked before about the word hone. Remember hone? Welcome hone. Um, Hone is home without one little leg on the M. And so that's where we are at. Those of us in the church, we have found from home. The homemaker is going to make home. We haven't done a thing. And so, as I read this passage, you're like, wow, a lot of future stuff. And it's always a struggle. Like, how do you apply that stuff to today other than, "Whoo, just be happy and, like, look forward. And, you know, everything's going to turn out all right. <laughs> That's true. But I begin to think about our mini Armageddon's we face every day. You know what I mean? When you feel like everybody's against you. Whether it's for your faith in one way or another. You just you have people that seem to surround you and they're, they're against you. And sometimes we feel like we're going through our own mini Armageddon. Opposition. Have you ever been opposed in one way or another? What do we do? What, what is the purpose of that opposition? That mini Armageddon? Well, as I think about it, one reason for opposition... Is to tell me. Is to tell you. That you are not home. You within me a longing for home. It stirs within me this. Yeah I'm so not content here. This isn't my final destination. I am just merely on the journey to my true home. And it causes us to look forward and to long. And to realize we haven't arrived yet. Let's keep moving. Let's not settle. That's what opposition should do. Is it stirs up that longing for home. But I fear that. Just as often, what opposition ends up doing is it teaches us to live in Rome. The place where you do as the Romans do. Rome is that place where you kind of conform, you just find the groove and kind of slide on by. And we do that because we're tired of opposition, and we just want things to be easier. We want to be home. And there's this trap to say, all right, this is it. Let's live in Rome instead of home. There's a band called Nickel Creek, and they have a song called When in Rome. And the last um, verse of the song stuck in my mind all week. Um, Where can a dead man go? A question with an answer that only dead men know. Um, But I'm gonna, oh boy. (laughs) But I'm gonna believe that. All right, that's awesome. (laughs) Should have written that down. You you were all waiting for that to happen someday, weren't you? Mm, Dead men know. But I'm going to think, oh, but I'm going to think that they've spent their whole life. This is so bad. (laughs) Trying to live in. Oh, but I I think that they're never going to really feel at home if they've spent their whole. Sweet. Rescue. Armageddon, people. (laughs) iPhone. Never leave home without it. (laughs) All right, here we go. I was so sure I would not ever forget that. Okay, well, where can a dead man go? A question with an answer only that home is going to look like or be like. We spend so much time figuring out what are the Romans doing? Let's do that too. And let's be very careful that our miniature Armageddon's don't do that to us. That they don't drive us to say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how I'm going to live in Rome now. So have you made Rome your home? To answer that, you must answer this question Which homemaker are you following? Is your homemaker leading you to make home in Rome? Or is your homemaker leading you to long for home and let him make the home? Alexander the Great, we looked at in chapter 9, he is an example of what it means to live in Rome. Alexander the Great was not living by God's Spirit, by the power of his Spirit. He was doing it by my power, by my might, thus saith Alexander, not by the Spirit of the Lord. Alexander 4 6, not Zechariah 4 6. And he goes on and he marches through and he's defeating the enemies and he's conquering the nations. That is Rome. But not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, Jesus is what it means to live in home. Alexander is the homemaker of Rome. Jesus is the homemaker. Alexander says, I need to build my empire. I need to build my kingdom. I need to make the home I'm envisioning for the world. And he begins to pull the sword and to use his power and his might. But I think Zechariah's encouragement for us is not to go that route, but to stick back to Zechariah 4, 6 and say, it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's... the jesus way it's the resting in our homemaker it's not the riling ourselves up and i got to get lumber and i got to get nails and i got to get laborers and i got to build this thing and i got to make a tree here and flowers and a white picket fence and a mailbox it's got to be perfect and a flat screen tv and a sofa and a fireplace all of it's got to be in the cabinets of the right color and all of that's matching we go crazy trying to manipulate and and, and microscopically manage our lives in such a way that we come to opposition or many Armageddon's happen around us. And we're trying to navigate through life. And we say, this is how I want it done. And this is how I will do it. And we're so busy trying to live in Rome. That way we become Alexander and we're marching on our horse. We're saying, this is how I'm going to make it happen. And Jesus is just inviting us to rest in the admission that he's the homemaker he says, don't worry about the opposition, your mini Armageddon. I'm going to intervene at the right time. I'm going to come into the scene. So let us be a people who are longing for home and not settling for Rome. And that we're not settling for Rome by following our own homemakers or making ourselves a homemaker but that we're longing for home because we're resting in and following Jesus, the true homemaker. And so there's, there's those shambles. There's the, the ruins of Jerusalem and the temple in your own heart right now. The things you're looking at, you're like, this needs to be built up. And you're thinking, maybe even the whole message is like not listening because you're so stressed out and anxious. You're thinking, how am I going to build this up? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to make it work? How am I going to feel more at home? So don't look for the power. Don't look for the might. Look for the spirit. It takes our resting in the homemaker.